Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Whining About History, a podcast where two longtime gal pals swap stories of women in history that you may not have heard of and chug wine while doing it. How are you doing today? We hope you're doing well. My name is Emily. And I'm Kelly. And we're so happy you're listening today. Thank you so much for tuning in to our first ever episode. Woohoo! I hope it goes well. And uh, just know it's probably going to get better from here on out. So yep. if you're not yep. happy, just we've only got up. Yeah, only going up from Nowhere here. Nowhere else <laughs> to go. This is the bottom. So a um, little bit about our podcast. Uh, Kelly and I are each going to cover a unknown or not well-known women woman in history tell their story, and we're going to talk about it, and we are uh, going to drink wine. And uh, Kelly, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that's the worst question in the whole <laughs> fucking like, world. What do I say? It's the worst interview question. <laughs> tell me a little bit about yourself. I want this job, pay me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, I don't know what you want me to say. Um, I'm 27 year old, years old, Minnesota native, um, married, three pugs, gamer. Um, yeah, the, that basically sums me up. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, so I'm Emily. I'm a writer and I work in uh, digital marketing, which uh, I'm highly underqualified to do. Just kidding. Hopefully I'm not. Um, I, uh, I have a pit bull and a chihuahua since we're talking about puppies. And uh, Kelly and I have actually known each other for like 10 years now. Yeah. We met our freshman year in college in 09. Oh man, that seems so long ago. Yeah, you had you had fiery red hair <laughs> and this like punk ass goth aesthetic, and right away I was like, this girl's way too cool uh, to be friends with me. And then here we are, ten years later. Yeah, I know we've lived together multiple times, and you know we moved cities together, kind of separately but together. Yeah. Um, and she you know, says it was for her husband, but it was totally <laughs> for me. And you know now here we are doing our thing and back together. Combining our love of wine and women's history. There we go. So uh, I think we're just going to get started and talk about the wine we're drinking today. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a wine expert, so I'm probably not going to get super into it. If you're looking for education, go elsewhere. Yes, this is not educational. This is just getting drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're drinking a Dunnigan Hills wine called The Arsonist. It's a 2017 Chardonnay, and it's... As Emily described earlier, it's it's a wet wine. Yeah, yeah. You know, I <laughs> I never understood when people call a wine dry. I'm like, it's liquid. What are you talking about? But I tasted this and I was like, my mouth is very moist. <laughs> and uh, that's all I can say about it. But it's definitely doing the job. It's, it's a very good wine. I, I would recommend it. I got it at Costco, so I don't know how broadly sold this is, but it's good. So if you have a Costco, go get it. It wasn't too expensive. No. It's probably in most I people's mean, price range. It's Costco ranges. brand. Yeah, there we go. It's, it's in my price range, so it's probably in yours. Nice. Should we cheers to our first episode? Yes. So, cheers to episode one. Ooh, that is good. I'm a fan. I am too. <laughs> All right. Well, Kelly is going to get started off with our first uh Underknown, underknown woman. Woman, yeah. All right. So today I'm going to be doing Sybil Luddington. Um, she is someone from the Revolution, um, and you know everyone's heard of Paul Revere. She is essentially the female version of Paul Revere, except she did what he did better. You know. That's what bothers me about women's history is you find all these female figures who basically did what a guy did, but better. And here's the thing. What the guy did is great, but why don't we know about both of them, especially if someone did it better? Yeah. And I'll give it to them. Paul Revere did do it first. So he did his midnight ride um, three years before Sybil did hers. Okay. So, like, yes, I understand we know him, but I think we should know her, too. He was the dude in the YouTube comments that just goes, first! Exactly. He he is that man. (laughs) (laughs) So she was born in Fredericksburg, New York, which is now called Ludingtonville, but it's named after her father, not her. Okay. What, what, their father do anything cool? um, He was a war hero from the French and Indian War. That's actually how he met his wife. And then several years after they met, after the French and Indian War ended, 
they had Sybil. Okay. Um, she was the oldest of 12 children. Holy fuck. I know, I can't even imagine. I don't even know if I want one child, let alone 12. My god, do you think they were just like waltzing out? <laughs> I don't know. Like she didn't even feel it? Probably. It's probably just... one of those like Monty Python things where she's like washing dishes and the kid just <laughs> falls out. Oh my fucking god. I, there wasn't a lot to do back then though. There no. was church and fucking. Yeah, basically. And they were farmers, so I and assume then it was ba- church, farmers, sex. And then feeling bad about fucking. Yeah, basically. So, um, so they had Sybil... And then they had a few more kids. And then when Sybil was like four, they moved to Dutchess County, New York. Um, at this point, her father was still lit- bleh, loyal <laughs> to the British crown. And he was loyal to the British crown until 1773, at which point he did switch sides and joined the Patriots in the American Revolution. So he was a little late getting there. Yeah. Um, he, he wouldn't stop and ask for directions. Yes, exactly. He's like, no, I got this. Um, he was promoted to colonel when he did switch sides. And so he was in charge of his local regiment. Um, and he had land that ran along the route between Connecticut and the coast of the Long Island Sound, which was super vulnerable to British attack. It was a great place for them to land and then fuck shit up, basically. You know, I'm so glad that, like, beachfront property now is this very uh, luxurious thing instead of having battle applications. Right? It's like, oh, you're going to get attacked. Now it's like, no, just go get tan. Yeah. Just Much get, better. get tan instead of getting shot. <laughs> um, Sybil traveled a lot with her father just due to his position, Um, And because he would travel from town to town, you know, checking in on his men, recruiting people, whatnot. Busy work. Yeah, exactly. You know, whatever colonels do at that time, besides sex and having 12 children. Yep. (laughs) Um, Where did he find the time? (laughs) um, On an ungiven date, which kind of annoys me, because I'm like, I bet if this was a man, they'd have the exact, like, date and time. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was said it was before her ride. Um, Sybil saved her father's life, um, when a royalist named Ichabod Prosser tried to come and capture him with a group of around 50 men. Sybil lit candles around her home and had her siblings march around the house in a military fashion, thereby making the royalists think that the whole house was guarded by soldiers, and so they ran away. Is that why they had 12 kids? Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're just like, it's it's a tiny military. For the military applications. That's such, like, magician shit, too, though. All it's, right. like, the illusion and the sleight of hand and, like, how clever. Yeah, and I, I'm i trying to remember her age, but she couldn't... I think she was, like, 12 or something oh my when God. they said that. And I'm like, how ingenious is that? I don't I'm I'm 20... Like I said, I'm 27. I don't think I'd think of that now. Yeah, I, I just turned 28, and uh, I'm not that much smarter or capable than when I was 12. No. Which is really sad, so... Uh. <laughs> so, um, on April 26, 1777, um, her father had received word from a rider that the nearby town of Danbury was under attack by British troops and needed his help. His own regiment had disbanded for the planting season. So, so all, they were, like, on vacation? Yeah, they're all scattered, you know. Working vacation? You know. For working on the 12 children. They're trying to work <laughs> up to the current. They're working right? their own, working on their own, like, child armies. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Um, but the rider that had rode t- from Danbury to his home was too tired to continue his ride. Um, her father needed to prepare for battle, and so... This is where accounts vary a little. Um, some accounts say that she volunteered to go do this. Some say that her father asked her. I don't think it really matters because she did it anyways. Yeah. Um, so she rode through the night, alerting his men of danger and urging them to return to fighting. She rode all night through dark woods and in the rain and covered about 40 miles. Jesus fucking Christ. Yep. But by the time she returned home, most of the 400 men that... That she had gotten were ready, were there and ready to march. You know, and I'm just imagining her in like her little linen dress and bonnet riding in the woods in the right. rain. And like, I drive at night and I'm still really nervous. Oh, I'm terrified. I'm, I'm driving on a clear open road and I'm always like, is there a tree that's just going to pop up? And she's riding through yeah. the woods doing this. And it says she rode from roughly about 9 p.m. until dawn. That sounds like my college, uh... All-nighters. Right. Except I wasn't doing any physical activity. I was, like, watching <laughs> we were riding TV. a horse or anything. I was watching TV pretending I was studying. Um, so, the day after 
Sybil's ride, the British burned three buildings and multiple homes along the route that she had ridden. Um, and not many people died. Unfortunately, they didn't have any totals. But they did say that it was significantly less thanks to Sybil going and warning everybody. Because everyone was ready to get the fuck out of there. It wasn't like... Well, and most, you know, I'm sure if the men left, the women were like, well, let's go, like, to town to be safe because my man is no longer here to protect me because that's how it was back then. Yeah. And I mean, all the dudes had the guns. Right, exactly. So. (laughs) And the horses. They probably took the horse, too. Um, Unfortunately, Sybil's father's army did arrive too late to save the town. Um, However... The, the battle for Ridgefield started that, that next day, so April 27th, 1977, and they were able to drive General William Tryon and his men out of the Long Island Sound because they were ready and waiting and, you know, like, they were like, oh, they're attacking, not just, eh, I'm going to go farm. Right. He might want to try on... A new career. Oh! Oh! We're getting punny. <laughs> this is that kind of podcast. Heck so yes. everyone that just turned off, thank you for sticking around as long as you did. And the rest of you, strap in. Yes. Strap in and strap on. <laughs> so after her ride, Ludington um, continued to serve as a messenger in the Revolutionary War, primarily for her father. And President George Washington did thank her for her service. However, she faded into obscurity soon thereafter. Obviously, because I've never heard of this woman until I started doing my research. Yeah, I think I I think I heard about her on episode of Drunk History, but I definitely I know more about Paul Revere than I do Sybil yeah, Ludington. Right, and it's not something you're going to learn in history class. Fucking at least I didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, I. Um, so after the war and after she was done being a messenger, she did marry in 1784 at the age of 23. Old maid. Old maid. Ovaries are drying up. I mean, I guess I married at the age of 23. Did I marry at 23? Fuck, I I was there. I don't remember. I was 23. That was four years ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she but... She married you know, at the same age as I did, but you, you got back married, then, like, 23 was old maid. Now, people were like, why are you getting married at 23? You're kind of crazy. You're such a baby. Yeah, right. Um, so her husband's name was Edward Ogden, and they had one son and lived in Catskill, New York. Um, her husband did die of yellow fever in 1799, so they Bummer. were only married about, what was that, 15 years? Don't ask me a math. I will not math. <laughs> Mathing and wine. Don't go together. No. Um, four years after her husband died, she bought a tavern and helped her son become a lawyer. Sweet. Um, and then she sold the tavern and earned a tidy profit for doing it. So obviously, she, you know, when she was 12, she had those, ma- like, skills she obviously kept them in her later life. She's a survivor. She gets shit done. Yeah, but this is kind of where it takes takes a turn for the worse at the hold end on, here. Hold on, I'm just gonna yeah, just take a ch- long chug swig. Um, so she she got about three times what she paid for the land originally, and went on to purchase a home for herself and her her son and her fa- his family. Okay. Um, her son died in 1838, um, and she. Because her son died, you know, she didn't, she was a woman, she didn't have any more income once her son died, so she applied for a Revolutionary War pension, not her own, because she technically didn't serve, because women couldn't serve in the military. She just, like, did shit. Um, She claimed for her husband. However, they denied her claiming insufficient proof of marriage. What was a sufficient proof of marriage in the 1700s slash 1800s? I'm super curious. Like, did they have some sort of certificate or was it just like, here, person's father, here's like five chickens, I'm taking your daughter Oh my fucking God, right? No, and so I was reading, um, completely unrelated, but I was reading about like the Revolutionary War and all that, and it was talking about how those who served for the Patriots did yeah. get screwed over. They had all these like veteran promises and they didn't get any of them. And I'm like, wow, way to go. America screwing over our veterans from day fucking one. Right. Super classy. Thank you. So for all that at the age of 77. So, you know, her, hus- her husband died, her son died. Um, she died in poverty. Oh no. I know. I'm like, she did so well for herself. She sold the tavern and then, they, she just kind of got screwed over and died in poverty, which is that super sucks. sad. Um, she was she was honored with a stamp by the Postal Service in 1975, so that's nice. Okay. Um, there's a statue of her by Lake Glenida in Carmel, New York, 
And there are now historical markers tracing the route of her ride through Putnam County. That would be such a bitchin' marathon. Because right? it's like on rough terrain. You're not just going on a track. You're... Right? Like it's over hills and That'd stuff. That'd be really pretty. I bet in the fall, just the leaves are so lovely. I'm going to be Maybe that we'll person. have to go. Yes. Um, so the first account of her wasn't actually published until 1880. Um, it was par- par- published by a woman named Martha Lamb. And when she published it, she said she had numerous sources, including letters and sermons and genealogical compilations and, like, all of this stuff about Luddington's life. However, when asked for it, she couldn't provide any of it. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, Was she real? Um, is this real? Is this going to be forever? Yeah, right. Um, it is kind of wishy-washy. Some people believe it was historical facts. Some people are a little more like, eh, maybe it wasn't. I still think it deserves recognition. A lot of other people believe so as well. Um, Paula D. Hunt is someone that published a paper in the New England Quarterly, um, and it scrutinizes the account attempting attempting to separate the fact from fiction of this Sybil Luddington story. Um, she does not pronounce on whether she thinks it's accurate or not. Um because it was more, she was more concerned with the stories like presentation and it came out around like a centennial of the event and like she was just kind of like, so did people make it up because of, you know. It's a cool story. It's a cool story or, to, you know. So she didn't actually say whether she thought it was or not. She thought maybe it did happen, but maybe some of like the facts were skewed. Mm-hmm. Like people said her horse was named Star and that she rode with like a stick in her hand to hit her horse. Um, I mean, that, that actually sounds very plausible to me. Right, and the, <laughs> and the 40 mile distance, some some are saying maybe, you know, how do we know that was her horse's name or that she had a stick or that it was actually 40 miles kind of a thing. Excuse me. She concluded her paper by saying, the story of a lone teenage girl riding for freedom, it seems simply too good not to be believed. Yeah, it's it's that kind of story. I really want it to be real. Right. I want to believe it. And plenty of other organizations, um, including the National Women's History Museum, the New England Historical Society, um, uh, the American historian Carol Birkin, all say that they stand by this midnight ride and that, yes, this happened. Uh, I think we're going to put our whining about history uh, stamp on this and say it totally happened yeah. because we're experts. Approved. We, we say it and it will be. Whining about her story approved. We're willing it to be true. Right. Um, however, the Daughters of the American Revolution um, will not give her the title War Heroine um, just due to insufficient proof, which I'm sure they have like a rubric of like, yeah. kind of like becoming a saint. You have to do certain things to be declared a saint. Right. You know, whereas I'm sure they're like, okay, this is the checklist. She doesn't meet the checklist. You don't get to be a war heroine. Yeah, tick those boxes. Exactly. Um, so my source was Wikipedia for this next se- section because, you know, scholarly articles. Yay! <laughs> um, so this is a direct quote from Wikipedia. Contemporary sources show that Luddington's ride would have been pointless. The Patriotic Army and the town of Danbury, New York, were already aware of the approaching British troops, as noted in the New York Gazette and the Weekly Mercury, which stated, On Saturday, the 26th of April, Express came to Danbury and Brigadier General Silliman, advising that a large body of the enemy had landed the day before at sunset. So there was no need for anyone to ride out the warning. The origin of the story at the time of the national celebration of the centennial also makes its origin suspicious. So that was from Wikipedia. However, it's like they warned the town of Danbury, but what they're saying is that then Danbury warned her father and then she warned her father's troops. So I still think it would be plausible. Like, yeah, the town may have known, but I took it as it was this town asking for additional assistance. Yeah. Like they were basically like, oh, we thought we could handle this. We can't handle this. Please come and help us. So this is basically either one of those rare times where a woman is being inserted into history. Yeah. Because normally it's, you know, they're completely erased. Or she's totally legit. And, you know, the further back you go in history, the more wishy-washy it becomes. And the harder it becomes to legitimize things. I want to say it happened. Yeah. Like I I said, we're we're giving it the stamp. Yeah. Um... 
So as I said earlier, she does have like the historic markle markles. Mine is not good for articulating. (laughs) Um, Near Carmel, New York, and then there there are also like smaller reproductions of that statue, which I'll I'll put a picture on our blog, which is whiningabouthistory.com. So go check that out because we'll have pictures and like a little synopsis of each woman we do. We need the validation. Yes, yes, please. (laughs) Um, So the the daughters of the American Revolution have a smaller version of the statue, Um, and then. I'll put the postage stamp on the blog as well. Oh, nice. Because that was for the Contributors to the Cause, which is part of the uh, United States Bicentennial. So that's pretty cool that they mm-hmm. recognized her. Like, And I feel like there has to be a checklist to be a stamp, too. So, like, I don't think they would just make anyone a stamp. Like, I'm never probably going to be a stamp. If you guys are, um, I know there's a real name for it, but I'm just going to say Stampophile, please let us know. Email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Also, if you have a uh, feminist stamp collection, please email us at whiningaboutherstory.com. We want to see that shit. I want to see that. I don't give a shit about stamps, but a feminist stamp collection. That would be sweet. I would get excited for that. Yeah. Um, and so you mentioned earlier that you thought it would make a good run. Yeah. Um, there is a fi- 50K Sybil Ludington run. Holy shit. <laughs> um, it's an ultra marathon foot race held in Carmel, New York every year. Oh um, my God. So, so it, it, it is a hilly road race and it's a, it's, it, it's an approximate of her ride and finishes near her statue. So, so that is a thing. How, how many Ks is a normal marathon? It's like 20 something. 20, 20K? Marathon runners, please let us know. We're we're obviously not uh, runners. Like I mean, like we've done a five k. Yeah. So this God, is um, ten times that. Jesus fucking Christ! Yeah, I could barely finish. I can't do that. Um, yeah, I think it's usually twenty five. So I think this is two marathons. I think that maybe that's why it's an ultra marathon. Well, maybe also because it's um uh difficult terrain. Yeah. There's actually, side note, there is a, uh, I don't know if it's a marathon, but it's this, um, one of these extreme races. So they'll have races like through jungles and crazy areas. And there's this one where it's basically one city block. You run around it, but you do it like a hundred times. That would be so boring. That's the difficult part. It's not necessarily physically tough, but you've got a ton of people in a small space running the same block over and over. Right. That would be my hell. Well, and my other thing is, I feel like at some point, I would lose track of how many times I've done it, because it's just the same thing. Yeah. Over and over and over and over again. When I used to swim, we had a, a, a thousand meter race, and you would have to find someone to hold a counting card yep, at I the remember end of the that. And it was it was awful. The first time I did it, my goggles fell off like right when I dove oh. in, and it was the first time I'd done it. And I can't read the numbers. Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit! I just hope there's something that tells me when I'm done. And all of a sudden, I just see an orange block, and I'm like, I'm going to assume that means this is my last lap. And I stopped, and I immediately look out over the water. Like, is anyone yelling at me to keep going? Yeah. Right. You have that moment of like, okay, am I am I good? Am I good? Yep. That's really cool, though. And I, I yeah, I I haven't really heard of her. And uh, I'm glad you were able to share that. Yeah, that that is the end of my Sybil Ludington. Oh, it is the end, but I will say, I got really annoyed reading stuff about her because they never called her by her first name. And that bothers me. And I've noticed it as I've done research on other women now. They always use their last name. And I don't understand that. And it annoys me, which is why... I kept calling her Sybil because I think that these women deserve to be called by their first name. I like that, especially with Sybil Ludington, because her father obviously made a name for himself. Right, He's like they a... have a town named after him. Yeah, and so I I think it's funny that you mentioned that because I found the same thing with the woman I'm going to cover, and I referred to her by her first name the yeah. whole time. All and my her, notes. And her name is actually really important in my story. So I'm very excited that you mentioned that. Well, there that. you go. Perfect segue into your story, though. These, these gals are like our uh, extended best friends. Yeah. So we're going to call them by our first names. I don't call you by your last name. No, we weird. don't have that relationship. Some people do, and that's okay. Yeah, but I do notice, like, cause growing up, like, I was never called by my last name, but my brother was. Mm-hmm. Like, it to me, that just seems like a much more masculine thing. And, and ladies out there, if you call your best friends by their last names, I'm not saying anything bad about that. I'm You're saying, not allowed to do that. <laughs> I'm saying How in my you? personal history, 
I've noticed it's a much more masculine thing. Yeah, I like that. It, it seems more personable. Exactly. Because I think one of the wonderful things about uh, covering women from history is how we can identify with them. And calling them by their first names just seems more personable and intimate. I definitely think so. Like, it just brings us all closer together. Yeah, we're all just one big Femi family. Ooh, I like that. Yes. Welcome to the Femi family. (laughs) Okay, I am going to uh, jump into covering my gal. And uh, just before warned, she's French. There is a lot of French, and I really did my best to figure out the pronunciations, but... uh, We're from the northern United States. (laughs) Strap in and strap on, because it's going to be a rough ride. All right, so I am covering radical revolutionary writer... Alliteration for the win, Olympe de Gouges. All right. So Olympe de Gouges was born in 1748 in Montauban, France as Marie Gouges. Um, Her parents were officially recognized as Anne Olympe Mousset and Pierre Gouges, but her father was likely Jean-Jacques Lefranc. Les gasp. Les There's so much twist and intrigue in this story. And you know what? We don't all know who our sperm donors no. are. And that's fine. But uh, Jean-Jacques was a pretty well-off guy. And he was also the uh, chief justice of Montauban. But because uh, no one could prove that and he they had... Married, yeah, so they, they weren't were married. Yeah, they weren't married. Nah, nah, not my baby. It's just some under-the-table lovemaking. I don't really know the deets. But Maybe she wanted 12 children. <laughs> he He's was, like, I just gotta get started. He was not on board with that. He's like, ah, 12, 12 is excessive. Just, Apparently one was excessive. And then she was like, oh, well, you know what? When someone comes to kidnap you, then you're gonna be sorry. <laughs> but because the parentage was iffy, she or neither she nor her mother were entitled to any of his money or privilege, which would have really come in handy because her... Uh, her mother's husband, Pierre, was poor and illiterate. Oh. So, not a super great off start. Uh, despite this, however, though, she was afforded a decent education. Oh, good. I don't know how. I couldn't find out how. Maybe it was a little under-the-table under money to go for the under-the-table loving. Oh, my God. He's, like, paying off his baby mama? Yeah. Bummer. Um... So while researching her, I got all these, like, Belle, Beauty, and the Beast vibes. Like, she's French, she's smart, she's beautiful. She's, like, singing about how she hates her provincial town and pissing off all the town members. (laughs) You know, getting her book eaten by some sheep. Yeah, you know, just the usual. Um, But she also had something else in common with Belle. She became a prisoner by a man. Because when she was 16 or 17, she was forced to marry a local innkeeper, Louis Eves Aubrey. Okay. And uh, the records are a little fishy on how old she was, but honestly, 16 or 17 are both really gross. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, it was the 1700s, but still. Still. I mean, just because it was acceptable doesn't mean it wasn't gross. He gave her parents some chickens. It's fine. Maybe. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, you get 10 free nights at my holiday. Yeah, that's here. what I was thinking too. I was like... <laughs> You know, if you need need more secret lovemaking sessions, you can, you can use a room in my inn. Oh my god. Super gross. I couldn't find an exact age on him, but some records did say he was significantly older. So I'm she basically, 30s. Yeah, like married a dad. Which, Ugh. ew. Um, I mean, I don't know about you. When I was 16 or 17, I was not like physically or socially mature enough to handle any kind of relationship, let alone being fucking married. I think I was goth at that time. You would have been a great wife when you were goth. Oh yeah. You have been a bitchin' wife. You're a great wife I mean, now. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but like I would pay to see goth wife Kelly. <laughs> Love it. Um so within the year, uh she and Louise had their first child. But lucky for her, within that first year, he died. Oh. Of reasons. I don't know. Some plague, I'm sure. People just fucking died back then, and we... Well, and if he was significantly older than her, maybe it was just old age. Maybe that tells us how old he was. Yeah. He was, like, 40, and he was already pushing yeah, it by One then. foot in the grave. <laughs> um, Olap was super excited about this. She was not happy with the marriage. She wasn't happy with being forced into it. And she would say herself, quote, 
I was married to a man I did not love and who was neither rich nor well-born. I was sacrificed for no reason that could make up for the repugnance I felt for this man. And that's true, because back then, aside from, you know, getting chickens from prospective husbands. Yeah, I'm stuck on the chicken thing. Deal with it. I love it. it. Um, No, I really want chicken. I know. I would get married for some chicken right now. (laughs) Fried chicken. Oh uh, um, but you know like back then a lot of times marriages especially arranged marriages were supposed to up your social standing yeah and so i understand why she's saying you know i was sacrificed because she's like no one other than the guy got anything out of this it didn't i mean okay at least he was an innkeeper so i'm guessing he wasn't illiterate like her father he probably had some income coming in you know but other than that like there was no social standing or like she said any good reason to get married to him it kind of just sounds like her family was like well we can't really prove your parentage so we're just gonna marry you to whoever's gonna take you and there's literally nothing else for you to be doing yeah you 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 get you're born you get married you die who knows In in a provincial little french town maybe you know maybe if especially if her mother was outspoken maybe she was viewed as a bastard and so maybe, you know, maybe she didn't see it this way, but maybe to her parents it was, well, at least someone's willing to take her. Yeah. Well, and she understood who her father really was, yeah. or she had that belief, and it actually plays into her story later. And I'm and so, not yeah. going to skip ahead, but yeah, she she was aware. Yeah, yeah. so, may, she so maybe the town viewed her as a, as a bastard, and so her parents... Did this arranged marriage as a, well, you're not going to get anyone else, honey. Yeah, this is just your life now. Um, She would never marry again. Yeah, For obvious reasons. (laughs) She called the institution the, quote, tomb of love and trust. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty metal way to view marriage. That's, That's pretty harsh. Yeah, and you know what? Marriage isn't for everyone, but I honestly can't blame someone who was forced into a marriage they wanted nothing to do with to thinking it's bullshit. Yeah. Totally valid. Um, so now Marie was regarded as a beautiful and intelligent woman in her hometown. And I think she probably would have done pretty well had she stuck around, you know, maybe she started a business and was enterprising or, uh, hooked up with someone else who the hell knows, but Montauban really didn't offer a lot for someone of her drive. Uh, so in 1770 at the age of 22, Marie took her son and moved to Paris And uh, I can only imagine how stressful that would be. Paris. Paris. Are there photos? No, not photos. Are there (laughs) paintings of her? There are paintings of her, and I'll put them on the drive, and I'll put them on the blog. But uh, I think she's pretty. But, I mean, all of these old paintings, I feel like everyone looks pretty similar. I mean, back then they literally put, like, a metal rod on your back so you stood straight. Well, there's just, like, it's just, like, a portrait, so it's, like, shoulders up, so... I mean, maybe. Maybe maybe she's still like, oh God, what a nightmare. Um, But Marie, she must have known that this was the only life for her. She would just die if she stayed in Montauban, either spiritually or physically, because it was just not for her. Um, And as part of this transformation and starting this new life, she changed her name to which would... she changed her name to the one that would persist throughout history, Olam de Gouge. And if I'm not pronouncing that right, you can blame Google. So there. <laughs> um, at the time, Paris was a hub of thought and culture and literature, and Olamp drank it up. She began to establish herself as a fixture in Parisian society and befriended, buckle up, Jacques Beatrice de Rosier. If I say it pompous enough, it sounds like I'm doing it right. Yeah. Like I have the confidence. Right. Just just rock it. Um, They were very good friends. Uh, And he would eventually propose to her. Friends with air quotes. We're doing doing the sexy air quotes here because they most definitely banged. Um, He would eventually propose to her, but remember, marriage is the tomb of love and trust. So they just stayed, sexy air quotes, friends. Which is, I mean... Why good not, for them, right? Yeah, you get all you get all the benefits of good being in a relationship. Good for him for respecting her, and good for her for holding her ground. Yeah, I like to think he wasn't a bitch about the friend zone. We're gonna we're gonna pretend that way. Yeah, you know, but it wasn't strong friend zone. It was like we can still sex. Yeah, we're just 
You don't get to put a ring on it. Yeah, it was like the intimate friend zone. Yeah. The, the fuck zone. <laughs> the fuck zone. There we go. There we go. The other F. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, together they would frequent artistic, philosophical, and literary salons. And uh, think of a salon like having all your friends over, except instead of drinking and watching Disney movies, you talk about the issues of the day. Hmm. Sounds... Sounds very fancy. It sounds like what we're doing right now. Yeah. Except we're talking about the issues of back in the day. <laughs> back in the day. Back in the day. We're yeah. getting retro. And the uh, the salons of the Lomstay promoted the ideals of the Enlightenment. Uh, and the French Enlightenment was a time of intellectual prosperity where people began to question the monarchy and the church's authority in favor of things like reason, liberty, tolerance, and equality. That, that sounds valid. That sounds like a good time to me. Like, fuck the king. Fuck the church just telling me what to do all the time. Maybe we should, like, have some other things factored in there. I don't know. That that all sounds like good stuff to me. Yeah. So, uh, not only did she embrace these ideals, she became a vocal advocate for them. Um, Olamp became a political activist and playwright fighting for equality, not just between the upper and lower classes, which was really the issue of the day, but for women and slaves too. Good for her. Yeah. Cause you know, my problems are your problems, are their problems, are our problems. Well, and good for her for not just elevating like herself, which I'm sure the men were doing, but to be like, no, like all of these underprivileged people, women, slaves, like we deserve all these ideas too. Like, oh you're talking God. about equality. Let's get equality. We're going to get into the dudes elevating themselves, and it's going to make you so angry. Yeah. So just... I, I still got wine. We're good. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get there. Um, she had a voice, and by God, she would not be fucking silenced. She wrote voraciously, and a few of her works included, uh, buckle up for more French, Memoir de Madame de Vermont, a fictional autobiography in which she calls out her birth father, Jean Jacques, inconsiderate treatment towards her and her mother and how the culture basically allowed him to shirk his responsibilities because of his privilege. And that also sounds like maybe he was kind of a jackass about it. I like to think he was a jackass. I like to think Jean he was. Jacques. Sorry if that's your name out there, but um, it's a little pompous sounding. Yeah, it's a little prickish. It's a little, you Just know. Saying. It's a little elitist. Um, she did wait to publish that till after he died, though. That's nice. So I don't know what that says. Read into it however you want. Maybe it was just less of a hassle to deal with that bullshit. Right? In case he was like, this is about me. J'accuse. <laughs> oh my I god. I think that means I accuse, but I'm not 100% positive on that. Hey, if you're French and you want to tell us what the fuck is up, email us. <laughs> what did don't. I just say? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Um, she also wrote, arguing that there's a direct link between France's autocratic monarchy and the institution of slavery, stating, quote, men everywhere are equal, like gasp. Uh, kings who are just do not want slaves. They know that they have submissive subjects. So basically, if you're a good ruler, you don't have to force people to do what you want because they like you and they're on board with you. But if you have to force people to do what you want, you're probably a prick. Yeah, that's valid. Yeah. I mean, she said it a lot nicer than I did, but... Well, she probably said it in French. Who knows if it's she nicer is... than what you said or not. You know, that's like a nicer, cleaned up version of the translation. In French, she actually said, fuck you, you're a prick. Yeah. Um, the play that really seemed to put her on the map, though, was Le Esclavage de Noir, or Black Slavery. Um, according right to, to the point. Yeah, according to Google Translate, it means Black Slavery. Um... A lot broke the mold by writing from the slave's perspective, Le Gasp. Uh, it was staged at the Comédie Française, which today is still the oldest theater in the world. All because the globe burned down. Yes. Yeah, the, the current globe in London is a recreation because that thatch roof was a bitch. And I mean, they still made it out of wood and thatch, which like, I'm like, it's just going to burn down again. They do have like special ordinances from the city. Like they had to, they had to check a lot of boxes to even get that constructed because it is a massive fire. I wonder hazard. if there's just like a, one, they probably have like a really weird sprinkler system. And then two, there's probably like 
fire hydrants on like every corner surrounding oh, you it. go in for the tour and they give you a complimentary fire hydrant <laughs> or a fire extinguisher yeah. <laughs> like here you go carry around this whole fucking fire hydrant i hope you have a wrench anyway um so this whole play from the slave's perspective because they're actually people and characters which is awesome uh, got everyone's britches in a bunch particularly the slave trade lobby which was a thing uh, who mounted a campaign against Olamp and her play. They paid hecklers to sabotage the performances, shutting it down after only three showings. Wow. That was yeah. quick. What a bunch of dicks. But we want our own people. Man. Yeah, basically. Uh, the controversy, however, launched Olamp into the spotlight. Right? It's one of those, like, oh, we don't want this play show and... Because it's bad for us, but then because they got the play shut down, everyone was like, oh, look at what this woman is doing. Yeah. Ever- oh, everyone knows who she is now. Good job. Um, her not sexy finger quotes, controversial views on slavery and eye roll, the fact that she was an outspoken woman, made a lot plenty of enemies. One of her critics, an actor and comedian named Abraham Joseph Baynard, said, quote, Madame de Gouge is one of those women to whom one feels like giving razor blades as a present, who through their pretensions lose the charming qualities of their sex. Every woman author is in a false position regardless of her talent. End quote. And Kelly is staring at me just dumbfounded by disgust. Like, okay, one, he's telling her to go kill herself. He's saying he wants to kill her. Because yes. he's going to gift her writing the razor blades. Two, he's saying any woman writer, which we're both writers, yeah. doesn't know what they're doing, basically, like, and shouldn't be doing that. Because three, they're a woman. Any woman that speaks out loses her charm. So what? what is... He's basically saying women should stand there, be silent, and be pretty. They should be sexy lamps. Have you have you heard of the? Uh, I think we might have talked about this a different time, but the sexy lamp test. I in don't movies. remember it. So there's like the Bechdel test yep. and these other I've heard tests. Of that. Yeah, so there are these tests to measure media as whether they have adequate female representation or representation of different um, groups. And the sexy lamp test is basically if you can take a woman from a movie and replace them with a sexy lamp, it is not adequate female representation. Wow. I'm yeah. gonna watch movies differently now. I, you know, I'm sure it exists, but I want to see YouTube videos where people basically replace scenes with women with a sexy lamp, and this guy's like hitting on this lamp with tits just, just do, and a wig. Do the lamp um, from a Christmas story, the leg lamp. The leg lamp. Oh my we'll god, that. that's the ultimate sexy lamp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, and I, I mean, honestly. I kind of have to give him credit for how eloquently he threatened and demeaned her because I'm the bar has been set so low where if someone insults me in a moderately eloquent way instead of just yelling at me nice tits bitch I'm right. like oh thank you for the thought you put into no, that like, it's impressive but it still makes me angry yeah yeah such an eloquent way to threaten objectify a belittle a woman um, despite all of this bullshit, however, Olamp remained steadfast in her, her beliefs, writing, I am determined to be a success and I'll do it in spite of my enemies. Sweet. Haters gonna hate. Yeah. Um, I love this. I drop love this that mic. That, that is like a mic drop right yeah. there. She drops her quill. She's like, <laughs> boom. Bitches. <laughs> now, while all this is happening, there are growing tensions in France. So remember the enlightenment, all that good stuff going on. Basically, everyone was realizing that the status quo was bullshit. That combined with growing social and economic equality and economic depression and Louis XVI's general political mismanagement and fuckery. I mean, it's Louis XVI. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> if, you, if you don't know about Louis XVI, go Google him. It didn't end well. Um, For a lot of people, but... Especially for, like, him and his wife. <laughs> yep. So this made France a powder keg that ended up erupting into the French Revolution in 1789. The Beheading Revolution? Yeah, I That's mean, really what it should be called. Like, it should just be called the Great Beheading. Yep, when beheading was super in fashion. You, uh, if, if you weren't getting beheaded, you were a no one. It was the who's who of beheading. It really is. <laughs> I mean, and I'm... Don't quote me on this. Um, but, I mean, it's called the guillotine. Like, that has to be a French invention with no, that name. It's, it's definitely French. The guillotine, the guillotine. Like, 
come on. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm gonna know. It's gonna be the beheading revolution. They didn't have enough uh, executioners. They needed to automate that shit. Yeah, right. Took just, away everyone's job. Just pull. Just pull the rope. It doesn't matter who you are. Just pull the rope. It's super yeah. easy. Um, so at first, the revolution sounded great. Finally, things were going to get changed. This was going to shake shit up. Uh, unfortunately, it became quickly apparent that the revolutionary motto of liberté, égalité, and fraternité was reserved for wealthy French men. Yep. So. Frenchmen elevating themselves. This was literally written down in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the French Citizen, written by the Marquis de Lafayette, shout out Hamill fans. Uh, This document basically laid out the parameters for human rights. Now, credit where credit is due, the document had a lot of great ideas like men are born and remain free and equal in rights, and liberty consists of doing anything which does not harm others. I think we can all get behind that, and if you can't, fuck you. Uh, It's not surprising it was used as one of the documents that helped inspire the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And hopefully that was the end of the marathon document titles, because holy crap. Yeah, right. God, breathe. Let's start shortening things, people. <laughs> We're just going to acronyms. Acronyms everywhere. <laughs> um, unfortunately, the document also states that these rights were reserved for active citizens. An active citizen was basically any French man who owned property. What about literally everyone else? Well, they were called passive citizens and had no rights. So it's like the American Constitution before the American Constitution was a thing. Yep. Um, wait, what year was that? I don't have the year written down, but I mean, a lot of these early human rights documents excluded tons of people. White man, white land owning man. Yep. Um, so let's see, who, who is everyone else? Well, uh, women, slaves, children, foreigners, Jews, servants, and actors. So wait, even if you're like a white male Jew that owns property, you're still not a citizen? No, because you're a Jew. Wow. Although, haha, to that fucking actor that said all that shit, you don't have any rights either. She has no <laughs> rights. She was gonna fight for your rights too, dude. But yeah, I mean, like, raise your hand if you're in that group. I know we are. So yeah, that totally sucks. Uh, naturally, Lump was not on board with this bullshit. Right? She's like, I liked the Enlightenment. I was all for the Enlightenment, but fuck you guys. (laughs) Excuse me a moment. Uh, So in response, Olamp wrote what is probably her most well-known work. And by well-known, they mean maybe people outside the United States. If, If you are a listener, whether in the United States or outside of the United States, and you've actually heard of the document that Emily is about to say... Let us know, because I'm super interested if this is just, like, the American public school education fucking us over. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the document was the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen, which Woo. exposed the failures of the revolution in its exclusion of all but the privileged few. And, uh, in great writer burn fashion, she basically rewrote the existing document to include everyone that was excluded. She even used a similar title, but she's like, hey, just, we're over here too. Here's the rest of the country. Like, have you have you ever turned your work over to someone and they just, like, mark it up like that? That yeah. is what she did. What a sassy bitch, and I love her. Um, spirit animal. Spirit animal, a lump de gouge. Yes, spirit gal. Uh, and she wasn't pulling any punches. Uh, the document opens with, quote, men. Are you capable of being fair? A woman is asking, at least you allow her that right. Tell me, what gave you the sovereign right to oppress my sex? Preach! That's another, like, mic drop. She's just like, hey, I know I'm not supposed to speak, but let me ask you one question. Yeah, I want to get that tattooed on me. (laughs) And I mean, what I love about this is that would totally apply today. Right? Those exact words. 
So throughout the document, Alam mirrors the language of the original declaration while calling out the hypocrisy it's guilty of. For example, in Article 10, she writes about how women aren't given equal rights, but are still punished as full citizens. So they're only citizens when we want to fuck them over. Right, and I'm sure it was the same for slaves and Jews and actors and foreigners. And oh, God. The rest of the country. It was, I mean, it was probably worse for a oh, lot yeah. of those people, just especially slaves, because they were not considered people. Right, and foreigners. Yep. She writes, a woman has the right to mount the scaffold. She must possess equally the right to mount the speaker's platform. So if you're going to punish me, right. if you then can, you're going to allow me to participate. Yep. If you can kill me, I should be allowed to be killed for being able to speak my mind. Right. Um, also that a woman can identify the father of her child, an issue which must have yeah. hit really close to home for her. She also demanded that in marriage, men and women are equal in the eyes of the law so that if they divorce... The property can be split up fairly instead of being seized from the woman because reasons. I mean, that's another probably close to home because I'm sure she wanted to divorce her husband, but then she would have been left left penniless with a son. There were no options. She was a single mom and a divorcee. And as much as divorce has a stigma today, it was not acceptable. Right. And that's probably the other reason, one, she never got married again. And two, the reason she called it the tomb of love and trust, because as a woman back then, once you were in it, you were in it unless you wanted to leave and be left destitute. You had no other options. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Now, it's important to note that the Declaration of the Rights of Women was addressed to the Queen Marie Antoinette. Alomp wasn't on board with all the hack and slash tactics of the revolution and spoke out against the king and queen's executions, which happened anyway. (laughs) Which happened anyway. Um, She was hoping for a less beheady solution. You know, like, hey guys, let's talk this out and figure out our shit. Which I get. Um, In an open letter to Marie Antoinette, Alomp wrote, Madam, may a nobler function characterize you, excite your ambition, and fix your attention. Only one whom chance has elevated to an eminent position can assume the task of lending weight to the progress of the rights of woman and of hastening its success. So basically, hey, Marie Antoinette, you're a woman in a position of power and privilege. Get shit done. Right, like help us out. Now, it wasn't uncommon for writers to address letters to members of the monarchy. Who's that one guy that literally, like, to the church, he wrote a letter to the church and just nailed it to the church door. Oh my god, I didn't hear about that. It's, was that recent? It, no. Oh, okay. It's very old. It spawned some religion and I can't think of which guy it is. But that's what he did. He was like, church, you're fucked up. I'm gonna nail this to the door and let everybody read it. And then he formed his own religion. I mean, even today, it's like a blogger writing an open letter to the president. Are right. you actually mailing it and expecting them to read it? No. But you're addressing right. the people in power and gaining attention for it. Still, I can't help but romanticize, like, Olap and Marie sitting down and being like, okay, how are we going to work together to get this shit done? Um, Unfortunately, Olap's outlandish ideas attracted the attention of revolutionaries who accused her of treason, which everyone was treasonous back then. If you didn't like someone, treason. Um, To the guillotine. Basically. It's basically like the age, actually, we should call it the age of uh, the Queen of Hearts. Off with her head! Oh my god. Yeah, you're right. Except uh, it was a dude doing all the beheading. Robespierre. And uh, his Montagard faction, which took notice of Olamp and her oh. writing shenanigans. So Robespierre was kind of the top guy of the Reign of Terror. And while his position during the Revolution is still contested, I think it says a lot that the period of the Reign of Terror starts with his first beheading and ends with him being fucking beheaded. Just I mean, at least it kind of came around to bite him in the ass. I mean, if you want to read into it. (laughs) Um, Do you think he had that moment when his head was about to be, like, cut off? Like, oh, this is what I did to people. You hope so. You hope he's, like, um, he can look outside of himself enough to think of that. Probably not. I don't, I don't know. Um, for this and her other writings, Alamp was arrested in 1793. Commissioners searched her house for evidence, but couldn't find any. So, in a boss-ass fashion, she voluntarily led them to a storehouse where she kept all of her papers. She's like, I have nothing to hide. Maybe you'll learn something. Right? Um, She's like, I'm just writing. Like, Yeah. And I'm calling out your bullshit. So, sue me. And, uh, anyway... 
So included in those papers was an unfinished play called France Preserved or The Tyrant Dethroned. In the first act, Marie Antoinette is planning defense strategies to retain the crumbling monarchy and is confronted by revolutionaries, including Olamp herself, because she really liked to put herself in her own writings. It ends with Olamp basically scolding the queen for her way of ruling and lecturing her on how to properly lead the people. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, understanding how this first act goes... Where do you think Olap is positioned as far as being a loyalist and into the monarchy or being not such a fan of the monarchy? I mean, she's probably like halfway in between, but from that, I would gather not a fan of the monarchy. I mean, the title of the play was literally The Tyrant Dethroned, which to me means taking a king who's not doing his job off of the throne. Yep. And that's what Olamp thought. And uh, that's also not what the prosecution thought. So the prosecution and Olamp both used that play, Olamp for her defense and the prosecution against her. Olamp said it proved that she was a revolutionary all the time and wasn't a fan of the monarchy. But the prosecution was like, well, you didn't de- you didn't behead or kill Olamp <laughs> she, in the first she's act She's still of your alive play. at the end. <laughs> yeah, and this remember, this is like the first act and a half of a play. Yeah. But basically, hey, you're showing loyalist sympathies. And th- I feel like this is a really extreme time where you are all or nothing. If you're not with us, yeah. you're against us. And if you're against us, clock, your head's chopped off. The presiding judge claimed Olamp was more than capable of representing herself, so Olamp spent three months in jail without an attorney trying to defend herself. This was not an uncommon practice during the revolution. I'm sure there were so many people being arrested back then, but three months? Yeah. The judge actually used Olam's tendency to represent herself in her own writings to justify the decision. Wow. So, like, hey, you can write about yourself, so that means you can defend yourself legally. It's the same thing! Just stop writing then. Yeah. Well, and he's using her own words against her. He's using her boldness to represent herself against her, which is just disgusting. Uh, Despite being imprisoned, she was able to work with friends to publish two more writings. That's awesome. Right? Um, Olamp de Gouges at the Revolutionary Tribunal in which she detailed her interrogations and a female patriot persecuted in which she criticized the reign of terror, which valid. It was a fucked up time. I mean, yeah, it's titled The Reign of Terror. Yeah, it's it's not a fun... It's no, not it's a not fun The rom. Reign of Unicorns and Ponies. Oh my god. Can we have that? We could try. Oh my god. Okay. Let's get on that. <laughs> 2019, The Reign of Unicorns and Ponies. Get on it. Um, her son, Pierre Aubrey, was suspended from his office as vice general and the head of battalion after his mother's arrest. So they're going after everyone. Well, yeah, it's the with. obviously your mother's a sympathizer, so you must be too. Yep. On November 2nd, 1793, she wrote to him saying, I die, my dear son, a victim of my idolatry for the fatherland and for the people. Under the specious mask of republicanism, her enemies have brought me remorselessly to the scaffold. Literally the next day, she was sentenced to death and executed, charged with attempting to reinstate the monarchy. She was beheaded and disposed of in Madeline Cemetery. One rando Parisian wrote of the event, and this is a little long, but I feel like it sums it up really well, so just bear with me. I'm just going to take a drink while you read. Yeah, you might want to drink through the whole thing. It's kind of a bummer. Yesterday, at 7 o'clock in the evening, a most extraordinary person called Olympe de Gouges, who held the imposing title of Woman of Letters, was taken to the scaffold, while all of Paris, while admiring her beauty, knew that she didn't even know her alphabet. She approached the scaffold with a calm and serene expression on her face and forced the guillotine's furies, which had driven her to this place of torture, to admit that such courage and beauty had never been seen before. That woman had thrown herself in the revolution, body and soul. She, having quickly, or, but having quickly perceived how atrocious the system adopted by the Jacobins was, she chose to retrace her steps. She attempted to unmask the villains through the literary productions which she had printed and put up. They never forgave her, and she paid for her carelessness with her head. 
Did That's they just say she doesn't know how to write? I don't get that part. Like, they literally, in the, like, two sentences apart, call her the woman of letters and then say, but all of Paris knows that she doesn't know her letters. And I'm like, wait, what? If anyone knows if that's like if that's like an old school thing, I don't know because he says such nice things about I her. I know. Well, but here's the thing that kind of bothers me: like almost all of it is about how pretty she is. Yeah, her beauty is definitely recognized because that's all that's all she is. So there's a lot of sexism that comes oh, yeah. in through that. But uh, that's very nice. That was really hard to read while drunk. So uh, any slip ups? That was really good for me. <laughs> After her death, she was used as an example to deter other politically active women. She was also characterized as an extremist. Uh, It was said she demanded that women abandon their homes and was depicted as a founding member of the Society of Revolutionary Republican Women, which advocated for sexual equality. Ironically, the women who actually founded the group were not executed. So she was characterized as this, like, Bra burning, leave your husbands, like extremist feminist, and yeah. she wasn't. If anything, she was super middle. Ground. I wonder if they just viewed her that way because she wasn't married. You know, she was super outspoken. You know, and she was kind of on her own. Like I'm sure she had a following, but she didn't found a Republican Party of Women or whatever it was. Sorry, the the line is just like the takes the words away. The Society of Revolutionary Republican Women, you know, like, and maybe all those women were married, and so they, you know, they were like, oh well, they're staying with their husbands. Whereas for her, it was like she doesn't even have a husband. I think it goes with the traditional pattern of crazy lady. Yeah, they're hysterical. We're over emotional. We're all a bunch of bra burning, free bleeding psychos. Like, and here's the thing. If you don't like wearing your bra and you like free bleeding, that's your thing. But it's always used against people to categorize women who are upset about genuine issues as psychos. Well, it's just like they used to put women in mental institutions for hysteria. which or was reading. Which was basically just like, oh, you disagreed with your husband? Obviously you're hysteric and you need to go be put in a mental institute. Kelly, you're getting a little worked up. I think you need to take a step back and calm the fuck down. No. <laughs> I will say, total side note, the only good thing that came from hysteria is the vibrator. <laughs> Do you know that, is that story? actually a thing? Yeah, so a common cure for hysteria was basically male doctors jerking off women. And making them orgasm, but their hands would cramp, so they invented the vibrator. (laughs) Well, you know what? Cheers to that. Cheers to the vibrator. Not to the hysteria. (laughs) No, that's bullshit, but the vibrator is pretty great. Um, Okay. After Alam's death, her son Pierre signed a letter denying his endorsement of his mother's political legacy and even tried to change her name in the records to Marie Aubrey, which would have been her married name. That's so sad. Which she would have fucking hated. Despite this, the name Olam de Gouge has endured. Um, though being a well-known controversial figure in her time, Olam has largely been forgotten by history. Awareness of her was reignited in the 1980s when Oliver Blanc wrote her biography. And I tried to find it, but it's only in French. So if you know French and, like, I'll give you 20 bucks and you can translate it for That'd me. That'd be sweet. I'll read it. I'll, I'll give, I'll give you, you 20, 20 bucks. bucks, too. We'll give you 40 bucks total. Yeah, I'm, I'm poor. You know what? Support the podcast. I'll have more money and then I can give you, like, maybe 40 bucks. Yeah. Um, in 2004, a square in Paris was named the... Place Olympe de Gouges, and during the inauguration, an excerpt from the Declaration of the Rights of Women or Woman was read. In 2007, French presidential contender, oh God, uh, Ségolène Royal, S-E-G-O-L-E-N-E-R-O-Y-A-L, expressed the wish that Gouges' remains be moved to the Pantheon. Unfortunately, her remains, along with many other victims of the Reign of Terror, have been lost, so any reburial will be purely ceremonial. Did they do it anyways? I don't know. I think he was a presidential contender, and he just proposed it. Maybe it was, if I became president, we would do this? Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know his other politics, but I can get behind that that action. Just that one thing. Well, and before when I said her remains were disposed of after her execution, I mass, had, mass grave style. I had originally written written it as interred, but then I read that no one actually knows where the fuck she yeah. is. No, it's probably like anyone they beheaded in a day got thrown into one pit and they just filled it in and moved on. And just didn't have room. Um, little bonus factoid before I wrap up. Olamp was way ahead of her time in terms of fighting for women's rights to vote. Women in France weren't granted the right to vote until, any guesses? 1841. You're, like, just a little over a hundred years 1741. <laughs> Which I didn't know. I thought it was way sooner than that. So holy shit. And I didn't look into it that much. So I don't know if that was just white women's right to vote or what the parameters are. Because yeah. a lot it's of... It's always hard to know. There's always layers of... It's like an onion. Yes. It's a shitty, suppressive Rotten onion. onion. <laughs> so yeah. It's that patriarchy is, onion. That is Alain de Gouge. You know, next time we should maybe try to end on a high note. You know what? Um, I think what we can do is share something we're thankful for. Because these stories can be pretty bummerific. Bummerific. Yeah. Okay, you go first. Um, I'm really thankful we get to do this podcast together. I should have gone first. (laughs) But, you know, we've been friends for a long time. We're both really into history. And I'm glad that we can get together, drink some cheap wine, and talk about badass women. Right. I'm thankful that even though women still are more oppressed that we live in a day and age that we can still be our own women we are you know we're not property of our husbands anymore we're not traded for chickens we're you know we're not i don't know like we're allowed to say stuff yeah and i mean not everyone may like it but i'm I, I agree with you. I'm also thankful for um, the sacrifices that yeah. have gained us the rights like, we have today. I'm sure at some point we're going to get some angry white guy rant in an email. Because I know other, you know, female podcasters that I've listened to have gotten that. Um, and I, you know, we're talking about women's history. It's going to happen. Yeah. But I'm thankful for, you know, the fact that we can get that email and just go, ha fuck you. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm happy we have an outlet, and uh, we have we still have a long way to go. But I'm thankful for where we are today, and here we are making new history. Awesome! Thank you for joining us. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please tune in to our next episode where we'll be covering some more badass gals and drinking more great cheap wine. Heck yeah! All right, have a wonderful empowered day. Bye. Bye.